Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Wow. Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST. Code ACAST. Hello and welcome to The Napoleonicist. Surprise! I left you with a little bit of a teaser last time saying that it was the season of miracles because it's Christmas and so, you know, maybe you'd just get one last episode before the new year. So I've decided to give you three in a month, even though that's meant to happen in January. Hey, call it a Christmas present because I'm so incredibly generous. Um, but this one's going to be a little bit different. This is the Napoleonicist Christmas party, even though it's actually being broadcast slightly after Christmas. So it's more like a New Year's party. Um, we've got people kind of attempting dance moves. And I hasten to add that, yes, attempting really is the word. Um, success is, is obviously subjective. Uh, in terms of how good those dance moves are. I will introduce our guests in just a moment. Um, for those who are listening in the UK and have been concerned about Christmas parties and um, whether or not certain organisations and institutions are conforming to guidance on parties or whether they are business meetings involving wine and cheese boards, please do not worry because this business meeting slash Christmas party, however you would choose to describe it, is taking place via Zoom and therefore no lockdown restrictions, existent or otherwise, are being broken. So um, please take note, Prime Minister. Anyway, moving on from politics, who do we have with me tonight? Well, some of my favourite people in the Napoleonic sphere, really. Um, not all of my favourite people, but definitely some of my favourite people. Although the first of my guests, isn't actually here. So we'll we'll introduce him when he actually pitches up. Um, he's currently walking his dog. Um, more on that later. Um, the second of my guests isn't actually a Napoleonic specialist. <laughs> Andy Dorman. Hello, my friend. It's been a long time since you've been on. Um, folks will remember you from Irish Month when you were telling us kind of all things important about the sort of Irish army and where it comes from. Well, the Irish military establishment is the 
the correct way to, to term it, not the Irish army. Um, and it was a fascinating one. You dragged us kicking and screaming into the pre-1789 period. And which, I'll do it again. <laughs> I'm, I'm banking on it. Um, but it's great to see you. Hello. Um, Josh Proven, Master of Adventures in Historyland. Josh, you're on the Napoleon Assist so often. I'm thinking I should probably just get a chair with a plaque with your name on it um, as part of the sort of furniture, inverted commas, of this podcast. How are you doing, buddy? I'm doing very well. Looking forward to Christmas. Um, and also, I will hold you to that chair because I have been furniture in many rooms in my life. And I this will be the first time I have been, um, uh, what's the word, commemorated in, in them. I'm noticing that you're, spon you're sponsoring like another... I don't know, is it like a llama foundation that kind of encourages you to wear these jumpers? Is it a different? Actually, I thought it was a different llama jumper. It might be the same one. It's just the same one. It's the same one. Um, because it's it's this show, and now it's a running gag, this llama jumper. Yes, but you're also sporting a very strong hat game, mm. which um, is making me feel the need to reach for my tricon hat just to kind of match you on that um but we may descend to those levels of madness uh, a little later good to have you back my friend and good to be back and the last of my guests who is actually with us at the moment is none other than beatrice de graf who i hasten to add i know i slipped this in very quietly well not very quietly actually and i shouted and screamed about it on twitter uh, when i signed the contract she's about to become my boss but that's not why <laughs> she's in the, the room tonight. Um, Beatrice has joined us, as you all know, on a number of occasions, becoming a, a regular commentator on the sort of political elements and making me as a military historian think about more than just the guns and the battles and the strategies and so on. Um, and I'm very much looking forward to her kind of making me look at, at entirely new areas um, by kind of delving into the dark side, if you will, that is diplomatic history during this period. And, and don't forget the dresses, Zach. The frills and the dresses. Are you expecting me to wear the dresses, though? I'm not sure. We no, 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 no. In the I'm going to talk about it. Okay, okay. Uh, <laughs> I, I like this. I like this team. <laughs> I'm excited for it. <laughs> How are you doing, Beatrice? Fine, thank you, Zach. Okay, so the plan for tonight, well, there isn't kind of really a, a plan per se. We're just going to kind of talk the period. Um, we're going to have rants at, at, at various stages about varying things. Um, I did kind of say to the guys as they were prepping, you know, we'll, we'll do a round where you get to have a rant. But let's be honest, we do like a good rant. So we might actually end up doing multiple rounds of rants. Um, we're going to talk about kind of news amongst individuals. Um, the developments that have excited us in the last year, research-wise, talk about where what's kind of needed for the future of Napoleonic stuff. Um, and I, I did say to Josh before we started recording that the future of Napoleonic stuff needs to not involve a Napoleon the Fourth. Okay, that that would not be a good thing. Um, Josh, Josh looks scandalised by this suggestion. You're right, I, Josh. I, I don't know, man. I, I, I feel like it would be interesting if, if, if somebody brought back the House of Bonaparte in a constitutional way. You know, it would just be fun. <laughs> yeah, but it didn't end well with Napoleon One or Napoleon Three, and nobody talks about Napoleon Two because Napoleon Two didn't really exist in any. It became way. it became an Austrian, indeed. So on the basis of you know, two out of three didn't end well. 
probably best not to repeat the experiment. Probably not. Poor old Prince Imperial dying in Zululand in a British uniform. The yes. irony. The, the irony. What's the, what's the cutoff then in terms of success rate for YouTube? Okay, bring things back. Because if you consider like the Holy Roman Empire or <laughs> Reichs as a whole, you've got two out of three successes mm. and we could bring it back. Zach? So, and, and, and it's a question of timing. I mean, you could hmm. bring it back before it all crumbled down. I mean, both Napoleons had some success, the first and the third, at least. Mm -hmm. This is true. Zach, what is the answer here? Um, I like the way I took the arbiter of justice. Um, I, uh, yeah, nice one, Dorman. Way to, to hit me. I'm going to this one. Um, considering what happened with the Third Reich, and if for some bizarre reason folks haven't pieced it all together, the Third Reich was Nazi Germany. Well, the third <laughs> season of any show is never good. <laughs> oh, Game of Thrones, Game of Thrones. Game of Thrones, the final season of Game of Thrones was appalling. So let's say the, the final one is, is the, the one that breaks, um, breaks the franchise down. That's what I'm gonna go with. Um, and we don't need a remake. Uh, when it comes to Holy Roman Empires or German Reichs. Um, there we go. I probably weaseled my way out of that one. And we are going to go very quickly to developments um, within your own spheres. Actually, I just want to know kind of what you guys are working on at the moment, because part of the reason that I like what you do and enjoy talking to you is because you're all doing really interesting stuff. So, Dorman, I'm going to start with you because you're you said yourself earlier, you are me six months ago. You're yeah. one of those poor misguided souls who embarked on a PhD and now has to deliver it. And, and boy, does my heart go out to you. So where are you at with your PhD? What are you working on? What's, what's new in terms of that process? So my supervisor and I had agreed that I would have a complete draft by the end of year. So that's kind of where we're. So it's all coming together in a manner of speaking, but we're uncovering a lot of shall we say, uh, nitpicks of issues and that kind of thing. Um, most of the time, or most at the moment, I'm dealing with the, uh, the issue of Irish recruitment, specifically Catholic recruitment. Um, I'm trying to provide a, a, an accurate timeline as to when it was officially sanctioned compared to when it took place. Uh, you know, mass Irish Catholic recruitment was not supposed to have taken place at all, but it was definitely happening at least in 1757, definitely during the American War of Independence, even though it wasn't supposed to, but it's only sanctioned in 1793. And I've noticed that it's something that even the best historians of these periods kind of skim over. So that's the current uh, <laughs> minefield I'm trying to trip over. Um, there's other issues as well with um, surrounding uh, agrarian protest, which I alluded to uh, before we started and uh, sorting out my various different kinds of boy movements, be that white or right or oak or steel boys and all kinds. So lots of just putting things in the right order and making sure they all work and hoping not to annoy my potential extern, whoever that may be. <laughs> See, that sounds a bit like kind of all of those radical movements that you had circulating in Britain after the English Civil War, where you've got the ranters and the levellers and the diggers and... Yep. A whole host of others whose names now escape me because I last studied this at A level, but which was, despite appearances, um, more than a decade ago. Um, the, the running joke there being folks who 
you know, this is a radio show, so you don't get to see my face. I look like I'm about 12. Um, so for me to say that it, despite appearances, is basically kind of an illusion to that. Um, yeah, it, it sounds like a bit of a nightmare, sort of trying to unpick all of these different groups. I'm quite struck by what you say, though, about the recruitment thing. Is that just pragmatism? He says, having titled his PhD thesis, Pragmatism and Discretion, so therefore having a vested interest in this pragmatic argument. So it isn't, it, it, from the military perspective, it's nonsensical to have a body of soldiers who, or body of potential soldiers who are competent and are known to be competent based on service in other nations, be that France or, or otherwise, um, just sitting there doing nothing. However, from an Irish Protestant perspective, the thought of arming Irish Catholics and training them to be soldiers, sending them out and then disbanding them, presumably in Ireland, is a terrible idea because it will just lead to unrest. So that's their theory. So it's the British administration kind of putting their foot on that of the Irish administration and forcing them to turn a blind eye as much as anything else. It's not, as I say, it's not officially sanctioned until 1793, but you do get increased uh, Catholic relief throughout the period. So it's a building up of steam throughout. And I guess from the military perspective, it's just they're getting their hands on whoever they can. So there's a, I was looking through these newspaper reports during the week, and in one month, there's eight desertions listed from this, this place. And, you know, seven of them are from Ireland, and six of them have quite Catholic Irish sounding names. So there's going to be a significant percentage, even if it's not officially, you know, reported. So I think that from, as I said, junior officers don't care, they just need to hit quota. So why not? <laughs> Is there an oath that you had to swear upon signing up? Because that this yeah. was, I was discussing this with somebody a few days back and we were just kind of going around with circles about this whole issue of the oath, because if you're Catholic and you're swearing an oath to a God that you don't believe in, does it really count as an oath? Because you don't believe in all of that anyway. So, you know, it's, it's just a case of, of appeasing whoever's trying to sign you up but at the same time I, I couldn't remember the nature of that oath remember if you had to denounce Catholicism and kind of affirm your commitment to Protestantism and so I'm curious on your thoughts on that. If I recall and it's been a while since I looked at the test act but if I recall the oath um, forces you to recognize the king as head of church so you are kind of separating yourself from the papacy as much as anything else. It's not necessarily a theological issue as it is a um, ecumenical one. <laughs> That's the word. Um, so whether or not it, it officers just kind of left that bit out <laughs> and said, we'll take you anyway, or they kind of kind of rushed through that bit, kind of mumbled uh, through that particular section of it. I'm not sure because unfortunately there's very few surviving examples of Catholic soldiers recruiting or being recruited. Um, that being said, it doesn't change until the 1790s. So it, whatever loophole they were exploiting, they were doing so uh, regularly. And there was many ways for them to exploit it. Some of, in some cases they would recruit in Ireland, but recruit them officially in Scotland. Or England, they just move them over, and that way they can kind of get around a lot of the legislation in place, and then they'll sign up them up as Englishmen, and then they they had they have them written in the official record as Irish, but you know that's just nitpicking at that stage. Um, so this is the thing: 
officially, clerically, it's not legal, but it's happening to a considerable extent. So come back to the thesis chapter when I finished it and I'll have a better explanation. That sounds brilliant. Never underestimate the power of a subaltern officer to mm. find a way to wheedle around some kind of legal stipulation. Um, well, we've started strongly, haven't we? Um, there was me thinking that tonight was just going to be all about giggles, and instead we've given you a, a very high-powered um, conversation already. Beatrice, um, don't worry, Josh, I'm not kind of not coming to you next because I'm expecting you to lower the tone. I'm just going to the next person who's on my screen. Beatrice, um, you're always busy, to be honest with you. That's not to imply that Dorman isn't, um, by the way. <laughs> what are you working on at the moment? Um, I'm working on setting up a new book and actually that's the most luxurious um, episode in your life that you're done with your last book and you still haven't properly started with the next book so in your head it can turn it still can be as brilliant as marvelous as you project it to be and in the end it, it won't of course it will never be as brilliant as you envisage to be it in the beginning so I'm still at this 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 limbo in between situation that I dream of future books. See that's that, what what came into my head and this is just a reflection of me and my personality when you were saying that is there's a meme out there about um, proposals for conference papers and Dorman's already chuckling because he knows exactly where I'm going with this and the meme is that um, you have the T-Rex from the first Jurassic Park film when it's broken oh, yes. through the wire barriers and it's sort of screeching and the caption says the conference paper proposal and then you have yeah. beside that a picture of rex from toy story and the caption is quite simply the reality of the conference paper i, I <laughs> know just... that meme. That, that's brilliant but um to be honest there is a much older meme which is actually not a meme but a story which always uh, uh, comes into my mind if, if if i am in such situations and as this is this little parable told by tolkien uh, and it's called the leaf of niggle do you know it and this niggle is a very ordinary and not so much outstanding little chap who tries to paint and he has this perfect image of the perfect tree in his mind and but ever if he starts painting there's a neighbor or there's a friend or there's a relative nagging to him about something and he has to stop painting and go out there to help and he comes back and tries again to set up this perfect tree but in the end he dies he did not finish his trees it's a very sad story but he comes into heaven and there in heaven he sees he's confronted with the perfect tree and he said this is the tree and uh, yes the people say yeah this is your tree you've been painting it all along so there is a kind of a consolation that at least at some place at some plane in your imagination you did write a perfect book that's beautiful yes that's isn't it? i mean the meme is funnier but this is this is sort of <laughs> kind of a consolation I'm, yeah. I'm so encouraged right now <laughs> So am I, because being a few weeks away from a Viber examination where, you know, <laughs> people are going to say, so you started out planning to do this and then this is the reality of what ended up being sent to us. I'm quite liking the idea that actually this this wonderful tree of <laughs> you just reply, historical Have knowledge... you ever heard of Niggle? <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Let me tell you the story. <laughs> They'll probably love you for telling that. 
I'm going to answer your question through the medium of Tolkien. <laughs> exactly. There you are. There we go. I mean, it's a novel, PhD Viva Defense. We'll, 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 we'll see how that does or doesn't play out for me. Josh, um, last time, actually, no, not the last time we spoke, because the last time we spoke was a few days ago when we were discussing things for misunderstood people in history. But um, one of the many times that you've appeared on this show is to talk about your book, Bullock's Grain and Good Madeira. But I gather you're moving on to pastures new. So what's the current thing? Because we're going to talk later on about things that are needed. And when I heard you were doing, you were kind of thinking about this, and apologies if we're giving the game away and you didn't want to divulge this, but that's the beauty of the edit. Um, but when you said that you were kind of considering doing a book on this, I thought, good, because this has been needed for a while. Right. Um, well, the, if you're talking about the book I'm working on right now, because as Beatrice said, I dream of books future, you know, <laughs> uh, you know, I'm visited by the ghosts of books future many uh, <laughs> on many on many weeks and days. Um, but the book I'm working on the second is about the American Revolution, specifically the, um, the Spanish side of the American Revolution and the most critical military campaign, which was the Gulf Coast campaign between um, 1779 and 1781, when the governor of Louisiana, Bernardo de Galvez, um, just blitzkrieged all the way down the coast pretty much year by year and eventually ended up at a place called Pensacola. And they took it, uh, securing the entire Gulf Coast uh, Gulf of Mexico coast for Spain. I didn't know that you were working on that. Did you not? No, I thought you were doing something about um, the the campaign that leads to Popham ending up in Buenos Aires. Aha! Well, you see, that is one of the ghosts of Christmas uh, of like Christmas future <laughs> there, because because uh, and you may have been talking to Jackie where you picked that up. Um, this is in, this is contracted here. Yeah, I can't get out of it. I have to do this book before I return it. I'm, to... I'm not complaining. I promise <laughs> I'm not sitting here sulking. But uh, yeah, uh, sorry, sorry. This goes beyond the 1789 uh, <laughs> remit. But uh, yeah, uh, the 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 idea of the thing you're thinking of is indeed a book I'm seriously contemplating doing um, in the future, uh, which would be to do with the the British invasion of Cape Colony in, um, and you can tell that I, I, it's a very sort of germ of an idea because I have to think about the date. I believe it's 1805, 1806, something like that. Um, and I was, I, I was looking, basically I was looking for a book for it, for myself, out of curiosity, found that there was one that did not have end notes and immediately alarms go off in my head. Oh, opportunity, opportunity. And um, I asked around on Twitter and Jacqueline Wright, she said that, it's a good friend of us all, um, but, uh, but she had come across papers written by a certain, certain Popham. Uh, a certain Popham. Never heard uh, of that individual. Yeah, yeah, Sounds decidedly dodgy. Yeah, I have, I have, I'm getting a vibe from him, something, something amok there. But uh, yeah, but, uh, but she had found this correspondence and I've also been in touch with uh, a couple of other people, including a researcher from the Netherlands, who has 
prepare um, some reports about the Battle of Bloomberg, which is the main battle of that campaign. So I do hope to be able to come on the show at some point in the future and talk to you about the British muddling around in South Africa for the second time in the wars against France. Yeah, out of interest, seeing as we just miraculously happened to have uh, an expert historian from the Netherlands in the room. I was actually meaning to talk to Beatrice about this in the future as well. <laughs> but... Beatrice, how do the Dutch feel about the fact that we took the Cape of Good Hope and then never actually gave it back afterwards? Ah, that's a touchy subject. Um, interestingly, it has been a touchy subject in the past, but it's not so much anymore now because uh, um, what the British have with the lost empire, or well, I shouldn't perhaps say lost to some people, as they still cling to it, uh, in the Netherlands, the, 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 the immediate post Second World War years, they were a turning point in the way the Dutch viewed themselves and framed their own national identity. So when the Indies were lost, this whole notion that the Dutch was a vast colonial empire broke away. So the idea that, uh, that, that there were other isles, the Caribbean isles, uh, Good Hope, um, uh, Ceylon before that, um, it sort of belonged to the fetal, to the ancient regime uh, epoch. And from the 19th century onwards, the Indies, uh, now Indonesia, that was the pearl and the crown of the Dutch. It brought in all the spices, the gold, the jewels, the money, the, the coffers were filled uh, by that. But that, when that was lost, um, because, because Indonesia became independent, a whole new idea of an um, Dutch identity set in that rested on being a part of the Western alliance, democracy, and no colonial ties left anymore. It was also pretty much a national trauma, which is still in the process of being unearthed and being worked through. There's now an official Dutch government uh, committee uh, uh, composed by historians set up to investigate whether the atrocities were incidental or systematic. Well, everyone, every historian knows that they were systemic, but there's still political debate around it. Also, of course, tied to the fact, do we need to pay reparations, make excuses, etc. So Kaap de Goedehoof is just but one element of this very fraught and frill colonial past and working through it. And with the Indies, there's, this is far much more the concern in, in for, for Dutch historians, Dutch politicians, society to deal with it than Kaap de Gode Hope. And there's also this notion that without uh, the English support, the colonies would never have returned to the Netherlands in the first place after the French Revolution and the Revolutionary and the Napoleonic War. So no hard feeling there anymore, I would say, towards the mm -hmm. British. Interesting. This is why I'd love this because and I should, I should also say, like, I should also say that when I say there's no, there's no, I couldn't find a book on it in English, basically. Well, there are Dutch books. That's true. Yeah. It's, it's very much confined to the Dutch discussion. Well, I think we'll get to kind of questions of you know books that are out there that are not in English, which would the best one in the world. I'm very sorry, but I have a block when it comes to languages. I am utterly useless. It's not for want of trying. I just really wish somebody would translate them. Um, so we may well get there, but th that answer just kind of encapsulates precisely why I love this show, because you start off on one rabbit hole and you end up going down and discovering something utterly fascinating. Um, I could at this point uh, speak to Andy about how the Irish feel about Britain's colonial legacy. Um, <laughs> this could be interesting. How much Andy, time do you, do you have? Are you trying to get me killed? <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> oh god um yeah i mean this has been a year in which the concept of united ireland is being you know, uh floated more regularly so it's coming back to the fore again um it's a very delicate topic and one that probably isn't best getting into at the moment um but uh yeah we'll, we'll see what happens over the next few years um but yeah broadly speaking i'll, I'll take uh the, the note there and reaffirm my uh loathing of our worst ever next door neighbor <laughs> it's like if you were to have a garden party and then they decide to take over the greenhouse except then turn the greenhouse into an orangerie that's kind of what we dealt with um and yeah they still haven't left <laughs> that was very delicately put <laughs> i liked the self-restraint there um <laughs> but all sounds really quite apt um let's let's move on shall we to maybe less controversial topics um and i'm not going to talk about news from me because frankly i bore my listeners enough with news on my end just listen to back episodes and you'll hear grossly narcissistic stuff about what i've been doing lately um developments in research in the last year now, this is take this wherever you want, and we can just keep going around the room as far as I'm concerned, whether it's individual books that you liked or whether it's just kind of trends that it's kind of pleasing to see coming to the fore. Um, I didn't make much of uh, a what's the word I'm looking for here? Uh, I didn't make much of a secret of the fact that I particularly like Christine Hughes Patron's book on um, the Waterloo campaign precisely because it went and stuck the civilian experience front and center of the much wider campaign, which I thought was a really important fresh take. Um, so I make no apologies for emphasizing the value of that book again. Um, and Christine, bless her, being a lovely individual, mm. is always very touched when I, I plug her book um, because I do think it's, it's important for historians, to military historians, to see the bigger picture. And I, I'd say this with a lot of love for military historians, and I class myself as a military historian, albeit one who's also kind of social and legalistic and many other things at the same time. And I think there is a guilt, and I'm interested in your take on this, of us just focusing on those with guns um, to the point where we exclude things like people like camp followers even, or those who are working in the administration of the army. And they get pushed to the side because we focus on, in the British context, people like Wellington and Abercrombie and, and so on. Um, and I think for Christine to kind of make us all step back and go, hang on a minute, there are civilians who have an equally important story to add into this question of the Waterloo campaign is really valuable. And I, I like the fact that somebody's managed to produce a book on Waterloo that made me go, Thank heavens somebody wrote this book, as opposed to here's yet another book on Waterloo, just milking the Waterloo cash cow. So that turned into a rant. Um, proper rants will come later. Don't worry. So there's more to come on that score. Um, but yeah, let me let me pause at this moment before I start going off on one. Um, what have you particularly enjoyed that's come out in the last year? Dorman, do you want to start us off again? Yeah. Um, so I um, well, obviously the most important thing from my end is anything to do with Ireland and it, I realize this is a radio show but I am um, David Dixon's The First Irish Cities 
is probably the most impressive piece of history I've read all year, even though it's not directly related to my research. Um, urban history is fascinating anyway. And for him to have taken on such a monolithic subject and condense it into what? Uh, I should have been better prepared. Um, 259 pages without footnotes or without notes at the end. Like it's incredibly impressive. So for him to have been able to do that was just incredible. Um, and then I'm also catching up on stuff that came out last year that was also really exciting for me, more research specifically. Um, Janine Hurl Amon's uh, Women, Families in the British Army's edited collection is incredible. And then Don Hagist's uh, Noble Volunteers, looking at, and again, the individual story and not just, the, if you do have to focus on the guy with the gun, maybe don't focus on the bit where he's firing the gun. How did he learn to fire that gun? And how did he march to the battlefield? And how, how was he? What did he eat before he got there? And um, you know, why was he firing that gun in the first place? I think that's a very important angle to look at. So I think those those would be my top three. Yeah, amen on that last bit. Um, as people know, and I, I'm sorry, I'm talking about my own research, but I do like this whole thing of look at more than just the the minutiae of, of what people did on campaign um, and, and particularly what people did on the battlefield. And yes, that is interesting and yes, that's very valuable. But if you want an example of how to write a really good battlefield study, go read Rory Muir's Salamanca 1812, because that gives you a beautiful indication of how you can write a really good history of a campaign. That's also actually really good history in terms of looking at the conflicts and trying to tease out the, the tensions that come from that historical process, as opposed to, I've got a bloke who says this, therefore I'm going to recite it. Um, and PS, I'm going to tell the story, and it's all going to be very nice and wrap it up within 150 pages and, and stick a nice price tag on it. Um, and with the best one in the world, that's what a lot of people do when it comes to publishing battlefield studies. So it's much more interesting when people delve much deeper into those bigger processes. Um, doesn't necessarily have to be crime and punishment. That's just my little kind of obsessive niche. Um, Beatrice, let's let's go over to you. What are you what are you reading at the moment that's particularly piqued your interest? What I really liked what came out uh, this year is, is a couple of books, and um, I am a political historian, an international political historian, working on international relations, uh, diplomatic history. And what has been said all along is that diplomatic history uh, as military history is written and made by men. And uh, that's because in history, in the past, they did have the influence, they did wield the power, the instruments of power, so you cannot go around them. And that's totally true. But if you look with different eyes and different people are looking with different eyes to history, you see a new trend, a trend emerging. And there's two books that I want to mention. The first book is written by Glenda Sluga, The Invention of International Order, Remaking Europe After Napoleon, which came out with, um, I think, yes, Princeton University Press. And what Glenda does so brilliantly is that she again tells the story of the international order as Paul Schroeder did, as Kissinger did, as other people did, but she brings in the networks of the diplomats and not just the diplomats, 
also the wives of the diplomats. For example, there's this beautiful story about Baroness Caroline von Humboldt, the wife too von Humboldt, who was the Prussian ambassador in Paris. And she had a very specific vision of freedom, of liberty for the German lands. Um, so she was as important almost as her hus husband was, as was Barbara Juliana von Krudene. She was um, the, the whisperer behind the throne of Alexander, whispering in his ear how he should behave uh, whilst in Paris. And of course, everyone knows Madame de Staël by now, but there are many more of these women. Rachel von Varnhagen, the Salonieres, the women who run the salons and who knew how to place the people to interact with each other. If you were not invited to a salon like that, you were out of the league. And Wellington knew that. Wellington surrounded himself by women like this. There's also the string of stories attached to Wellington that he had all these kinds of affairs and relations, but there is more to that. He, he listened to women, to the diplomatic, the aristocratic women, and he knew that, for example, Dorothea Lieven, she was highly important in establishing this network of diplomatic relations that, that was necessary if you would mo have to mobilize new uh, uh, troops, if you had to um, run um, a new alliance after 1814 or 1815, if you had to design a new concept of Europe as they were doing it at the present. So I like this book a lot. And there's another book in line with this. And that is called, it goes even more into the detail of what women also contributed to international thought and relations on a content level. And that's called Women's International Thought, A New History, edited by Patricia Owens and Katharina Rietzler. It came out also this year by Cambridge University Press. And here again, it's not just about the great, the Anglo-American man, it's recovery history. It includes female thinkers. So not just the whisper behind the thrones and the salonniers, but also the people that thought about uh, international relations and not just white women, also African-American women. It's not just the 19th century, age of revolution, so it sort of um, uh, um, goes over the threshold of this, 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 this podcast. Sorry for that, Zach, but I wanted to highlight that book as well. Um, and this is a trend that I think diversifies, um, makes international relations, diplomatic history far more exciting and interesting. It was far more going on than has reached the standard textbooks that we were provided with at university and at school. So it's not just the ordinary man, what he ate or drank or how he accompanied the troops. It's also the role of women. And there's one last element that I would like to underline, if I may. Um, it, you already sort of mentioned it, Zach. That's the fact that when diplomatic and political and military history emerged in the 19th century as an official profession, it was very much tied to the consolidation of the nation state. So the big historians that were those who supported the powers that be. And uh, only now we start to see through new histories, new historiographies, that the historians themselves were sometimes also highly nationalistic, some of those still are today. So uh, by, by bringing us together like this, Zach, you're also contributing yourself to this new trend that we work more together, that we try to find comparisons, linkages, even if we do not speak each other languages all the time, we can discuss the same things and topics. And people did so in the past. They, well, they spoke French in the past, not so much English, but they spoke French in Paris, in London, in Berlin, in Amsterdam. And they also engaged far more than we 
realize uh, on the basis of the textbooks, not just at the Congress of Vienna, but also on all those other conferences and congresses that took place ever since. And the diplomats, they were far more cosmopolitan than we allow them to be not just the Wellingtons and the Metternichs and the Castlereys, but also the Palmers and uh, uh, well, the, 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 the Dutch diplomats, the Germans, the Blueshirts, the Humboldts, they were far more internationally oriented than we make them out to be. And I think only now a new generation of truly European scholars is able to flesh that out. Also because it's, it's easier to travel and to, pay, to photograph archives and, and to indeed do translate them. And, ask fellow colleagues to go to the archives for you and uh, make copies. And so it's this is also perhaps one um, advantage of the pandemic period that we're in, that it even has that it has accelerated this, this coming together of international scholars, so the Twitter historians, uh, but also in other ways, it's, it's now far more easier, although our travel movements are restricted, it's now far more easier to engage and communicate with each other on our specific national, colonial, imperial past. And I think that's really an important trend to move forward. Um, wow. That was almost a rant, sorry. <laughs> I was gonna, that's exactly what I was about to say. <laughs> um, you do realize that the rant comes later. Uh, <laughs> but there are so many things, uh, Dawn and I were just kind of laughing and nodding when you said about how some historians quite definitely are really quite nationalistic in, this, in their approach to this day. We won't name any names, um, probably for legal reasons as much as anything else. But um, I think we're probably all thinking about the same kinds of people, if I'm being really honest. Um, yeah, it's it's fascinating what you say about kind of language. Um, quite obviously, you know, French was the language of international diplomacy anyway. Um, it's just the Brits and time that have meant that English has become probably the more dominant international language than, than French certainly is today. Um, but Spanish, you could make a very, very strong argument there that Spanish, in fact, is probably perhaps slightly more of an international language. Dawn, I don't know if you've got any strong feelings on, on that. But... Nowadays, yeah, um, it's trickier. I, I don't know exactly when one could make that cut off, but I feel if you're looking at European history, you could you could get by on French more than Spanish. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, but you make a really good point about the fact that the, yes, okay, your Wellingtons, and but also your Blukers and so on would have been far more cosmopolitan because this they're, they're moving in an era that is pre the development of nationalism as we know it as a 19th century construct. And obviously, you know, you've got your Linda Collies of this world kind of, putting forth those arguments of when, certainly within, so Linda Colley, for people who don't know, writes about Britain and the formation of national identity. And at what point do you see a British identity emerging? And I would make the argument that the Napoleonic Wars is quite kind of yes. crucial in the attempts to construct a national identity based around the fact that you've got an army that's serving in multiple continents and starting to see acknowledgement rather than stigma of the value of Irish troops, of Scottish troops, of Welsh troops. Dorman, you know the, the 18th century far better than, than I do. Um, you might think that I'm talking absolute rubbish there and that actually you can see it earlier. But uh, so I'll pause what I'm saying and open, I'll throw it open to you. No, I think that the point's valid, definitely. I would just wonder 
is that the creation of a British identity or a recognition of other identities within the British army? That's a very, very, very good argument. Um, I mean, the Connacht Rangers, for example, are really proud of the fact that they're Irish. Inniskilling yeah. Dragoons, the same. And then if you look at the Highland regiments, well, uniforms alone are a pretty good indication, right? And their exploits are heralded as, you know, Scottish fury or what have you. So is that in any way unifying or is it actually more divisive? Yeah, um, great point. I guess my my counter to that would be it ends up being different things for different people, doesn't it? So if you're a Scottish writer, you know, if you're writing for the Edinburgh Review, or for example, you're much more likely to talk about the Scottish perspective. But if you're in London, focusing on trying to create a unified story across a metropole, then you're going to say look, the, the Irish lads played their part and the Scottish lads played their part because they all see the value of being unified under one king and one nation and, and so on. Um, but I, I don't dispute what you're saying at all because yes, you're absolutely right. People then take that to form their own regional identities, right? And so then you get kind of the, the emergence of the provincial identity versus the metropole identity and then you, you get all kinds of tensions based around that. Um, but again, this is why these discussions are so fun, because they just they just go around like this. Um, but yes, to, to go back to what you were saying, Beatrice, you know, because we are pre that age of nationalism. I mean, Wellington, he spends time at Angers, doesn't he? Learning to ride and, and conduct himself like a, a, a member of the officer class. Um, who's the other one who immediately speaks to my Clausewitz? OK, he serves in the Prussian army, then post uh, Jan Auerstadt, he goes and says with the Russian army, and then when he tries to go back into the Prussian army, faces all kinds of stigma because he's gone and served with the Russians and the, the hardcore Prussians are kind of going, well, do we really want you around? So, you, you know, you've got all kinds of things at play where people are kind of transitioning. And again, this is probably more Dorman's period than it is mine, but certainly during the Ancien Regime, this idea that you would serve an individual nation is much more fluid. And I can think of um, Ilya Berkovich's book really emphasizes this point about how people might serve in the Swiss army, then the French army, and then might go and serve in, in the Prussian and then end up right back in the Swiss army or, or whatever it might be. And, 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 and ex yes, and exactly the same uh, held true for the diplomats of that age. They served a dynasty, but they did not really serve a nation. Neither were they tied or born in that nation. Take Alexander who, um, brought brought to Paris all kinds of, of diplomats from Greece, from Corsica, Pozzo di Borgo, uh, uh, Hardenberg. They were all in uh, Alexander's service, although they were not born in Russia at all. They didn't even speak Russian. So it was very much more familiar that you surrounded yourself with cosmopolitan diplomats who knew the language, who knew the dynasties. Of course, the, the link was the aristocracy, European aristocracy. They knew each other very well. And they, for example, they pushed out the Ottomans, they pushed out the Americas, they didn't belong to. So it was still very feudal and ancient regime-like, but on the other hand, it was also quite cosmopolitan and that got lost after the Napoleonic uh, Wars. That's true. And there's also a point that, uh, one second, Dominic, and I'll, I'll bring you back in, but there's also a point here about if you're going to be diplomatic with somebody, approaching that negotiation process from a position of extreme stigma and kind of a sense of gross um 
again, I can't find the words tonight. Um, gross xenophobia. xenophobia. Thank you. There we go. Great minds. Um, it, it probably isn't the wisest. So, you know, having an appreciation of other cultures and, you know, a recognition of their value is presumably um, kind of important to the negotiation process. Yeah, although I'm not so sure whether they really were confronted with a completely different culture, because the culture was the culture of the high aristocracy. It was the Pomp und Prau. There's a very nice book written by Johannes Palman on the way how the, 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 the culture surrounding the thrones was still pretty much the same everywhere. You knew the language, you knew the symbols, you knew the wreaths, and you knew how you should behave yourself. And that all changed only not immediately, well, not with the French Revolution anyway, but only perhaps in the 1830s and the 1840s that really disappeared gradually. And the citizens, the citoyens, the bourgeoisie um, ascended to the thrones and the governments. Interesting. Dorman, I'm conscious that I cut you off. Um, let me bring you back in. Yeah, I was just going to ask, would you feel that that's a continental phenomenon as much? Would you almost exclude the British Isles within that sort of the... Uh, fluidity of position and being able to move around because okay bar outside of maybe the grand tour you don't often hear of english and maybe scottish you do hear of irish people moving around because we're expats at the best time but um is it primarily continental european phenomenon Yes, I mean, you should be able to answer that, Zach or, or, or Andrew, because I'm not a specialist on British history. I know that, that uh, British um, aristocrats, um, they were active, for example, in the Greek Revolution. So they went out and they did join foreign causes and they organized benefit uh, charities and concerts for the Greek Revolution in the 1820s, for example. Lord Byron, uh, many more noble women also did. So I, I know about that, but I'm not sure whether in Britain, diplomats or generals were brought in from abroad. I, I, I don't think so. Do you? That's mm. kind of my thought as well. I just thought it was... Yeah, I, I, I mean, we're achieving a, a consensus here. Certainly not prominent individuals. My sense is that you sort of take home talent um, and kind of develop that up. And Britain ends up kind of striking it lucky in the case of people like Abercrombie, um more yes wellington nelson um oh who's who's head of the admiralty at this point in time well you brought in the hanovers that's some part that's, <laughs> that's, that's true we just imported a monarchy that's yes. the house of orange yeah, yeah. <laughs> you just bring in that the, the, you just change your ceo you don't change your board yeah absolutely absolutely this is this is the way to do it <laughs> 
For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. So I, th- I think we've already descended well into the realm of rants already. I've had one about military history. Um, I think I might have another in just a moment. Um, but I, I do want to, to move this on to the, the next chapter, if you will. Uh, not least because this is becoming really interesting. I thought we'd just kind of end up having a giggle and this might end up being a little bit silly, but instead we're having really kind of what feels to me at least high power conversations. I'm not sure my head has had to work this hard since I you know, had to think up stuff to say in a PhD. Um, there was a whole conversation that I wanted to have about whether or not we're about to look at the great women of history as opposed to the great men of history. Um, but I suspect we might just have to do a whole podcast on that at another time. Um, I, I won't start off the rants. I'll be nice and, and leave that to you guys. Um, Beatrice, why don't you start us off with the rants thing as, as Dorman started us off last time. What do you want to rant about? Let's let rip, go wild. Yes, I want to rant about the way Wellington and Cosseray treated Tsar Alexander because I think they really made short shrifts of him and kind of framed him in a very false posture for um, posterity afterwards, which did, which wasn't true for the way Tsar Alexander really behaved at the time. When they met him and Tsar Alexander proposed his idea for the Holy Alliance, they reacted that he was gone bollocks, he was gone nuts, it was utter nonsense, Cassaray said, and did this sort of stuck into the textbooks. But if you really look at what Alexander did, and if we make it a little bit more festive, I mean, we're now nearing the end of the year, and if we go back to the end of the year in 1813, December 1813, it was Tsar Alexander who saved the Brits and the Prussians and perhaps the whole continent in deciding to cross the river of the Rhine. And there was nothing nutty or nothing bollocky about it at all. And I know the British gave them the pounds at Reichstadt before already, but it was Tsar Alexander in December 1813, the turn towards the year 1814, the evening before the Russian troops crossed the Rhine and Alexander sent them off and it was cold and it was icy and there were no bridges left so the Cossacks had to build all the bridges themselves and Salah Alexander was with them all the time and he shouted to his men the wrath of God had burst on our enemies but let us not imitate them forget what they have done to us let us carry into France not resentment and vengeance but a hand held out in peace I mean he still went into France with his whole invasion and all his troops so there was not so much peaceful about that in the beginning but when he was there he really tried to discipline his men not to engage in plunder he went to Paris not to make France pay and bleed but to really restore the peace in 1814 and it's of course all Napoleon's wrongdoing that he came back and then he really made things worse for, for France but in the beginning it was Tsar Alexander with his enlightenment ideals. He was, of course, also an authoritarian and absolutist feudal ruler who was also complicit in the murdering of his father. It's all true. But at the same time, he had a vision. He had a vision and he had a long-term ambition. And he was imbued by this notion that he had to bring the priest to the continent. And it was his kind of calling. And, well, I can see why Castoret and um, uh, Wellington 
thought that Alexander was a bit too pathetic, a bit too bombastic for the likening, because that's not the way the Brits then and now talk about their religion. They do not talk about it at all. I don't even know if Tsar, if Wellington and, and Castrey had an, a religion like that, as Tsar Alexander did. But for Tsar Alexander, it was his faith, it was his ideals that pushed him over the Rhine at that crossing during Christmas, the turn of the year, 1813-1814. And I don't think the Brits gave him enough credits for that. And they certainly shouldn't have ridiculed him after that. That's my rant. Interesting. Do you feel better now? Yes, but I'm not sure whether I convinced the British people to, from now on, look differently at the Russians. No, nor, nor am I. Um, and that's not because of how you put it over. I'm, I'm just not sure that... I'm not sure that... British folks tend to kind of dwell on it that much. I think we're, we're very guilty of doing what I do and just kind of going down the Peninsula War niche um, and kind of getting stuck in that rut. Um, he says, basically criticizing his own life's work uh, such as it is so far. Um, yeah, it, I'm guessing the Prussians didn't get the memo in 1815 about this whole thing of don't plunder and destroy their countryside no, and take no, all the anger out on the... The they didn't really, although Alexander really tried hard, and in the end, he made Russia stop and Gneisenau, and they were enforced by Wellington and Alexander together to not do that. So he did have an effect with that. And um, uh, in fact, it's something that the Russians themselves, if, if you take Putin nowadays, he still cherishes Alexander for this. Well, not so more anymore these years, these days, but in the beginning of Putin's reign, the first 10 years in the 90s, Putin uh, um, regularly dwelt on this period. And he even uh, made, made new, new statues of Alexander and he gave talks about Alexander and he stress the fact that there were good relations back then and that the Russians saved the day for Europe and they should get more credits for it. So not saying that we should all pay heed to Putin for that now, but it's a pattern into European history that tends to be forgotten. And you're right. I mean, in the Anglo-American historical um, consciousness, it doesn't figure at all, probably, but it should. And that is the point that I'm trying to make here. See, it's interesting that you say there it's Wellington and Alexander that are pushing that are collectively applying pressure to Blucher to stop that plundering. Because I wasn't aware that Alexander was even involved in that conversation from the sources that I'd read. My understanding that was that it's Wellington who applies the pressure. So that kind of confirms exactly the argument that no, you're making. Of course, there. I mean you're totally right. But probably you saw the, the, the sources um from the military archives and the way it was handed down uh, through the military and the regiments uh, and so on. But you know I wrote about this book on the Allied Council and in the Allied Council it was institutionalized and it was made international policy that the individual generals would not go about and plunder but and that they would not steal um uh, cash money uh, or the, uh, plunder the coffers from the French localities, they would hand in their receipts, they would hand in their calculations, and it would be divided on a centralized level. And then all the commanders of the specific uh, areas of occupation, they would then divide uh, the fruits of the war amongst themselves, but they would do so on an institutional level via uh, correct administrative procedures, and they would stop the looting together. So if Wellington did it in his troops, Alexander did it for his, but it was joint allied standing a standard procedure to do that from 1815 onwards. Yeah, it's it's all sort of quite 
uh, apologies, this is an Anglo-centric perspective, but it's quite Wellingtonian in its approach, isn't it? These are all things that Wellington sort of pushes for. And, and I like the fact that what you're saying is putting a different angle on this in my mind and starting to make me think, okay, is this a Wellington thing or is this actually just as you kind of said already, more of an enlightenment thing? And if so, why do the French, why are the French less keen to employ these more enlightened ideals in, in their approach to doing things? And it's opening up lots of questions that I'm sure there aren't hard and fast answers to. Um, Dorman is looking very thoughtful. Dorman? Uh, is this, there's a lot of this um, sort of just because of Napoleon's decision to go northeast as opposed to any other direction and run into those particular allied armies. And that is what cements Wellington and Blucher's importance in the campaign thereafter. Because if he hadn't run into them, he could have gone into one of the other presumably armies that were you know, keeping France in check at the time. So is it a, is it a fallout from that or is or was Wellington actually all that important? Um, there's a whole a whole trajectory of contingencies that you're touching upon there. Yeah. I mean, yeah. <laughs> it's a bit of, of a hippism. <laughs> No, of course it has to do with the way the, 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 the battles were being fought and the, the armies that encountered each other. It's always been the case in the First World War, also in the Second World War. The army commanders that entered the city the first time, they were made um, commander of that city and they were made appointed as the head of that occupation, a military occupation or peacetime occupation um, administered administration. So yes, there was a contingency or serendipity to that. But on the other hand, in 1814, all the armies decided to go back home. So there was no occupation of France. There was no Allied Council, it was over. And then Napoleon decided to go back. So that was a big contingency. And, <laughs> yeah. and, and only then a new decision had to be made. Uh, well, for now we will stay in France until the specter of terror and the specter of Napoleon is really completely vanquished. And as long as you stay in France, you need to pay for your army, you need to pay for your troops. And Tsar Alexander wasn't there. That's that's another uh, coincidence. He wasn't there the second time to fight off um, in person, to fight off because he was stalled somewhere else. It was indeed Blücher and it was Wellington, but it wasn't Blücher that called today because he was in favor of the plunder and retribution and revenge. And uh, there it was also Metternich. So more in line with what Zach said, it was also Metternich with his enlightened moderate ideals. If you plunder France now, you have your next war within the next three or four or five years. So we don't want that to happen. We want to have a consolidated peace. And that's where they come up with the notion of collective security, continental collective security, but paid for and supported by the Brits at that time. And only in the 1820s, 1830s, the British pulled out gradually. Yeah, there's definitely something in what you say there, Dorman, um, because Obviously, Napoleon strikes at Wellington and Blücher because they're the ones that are within reach. And it's that whole thing of it's going to take time for the other Allied armies to amass and march across the breadth of continental Europe. And therefore, if he can strike that quick blow, then, you know, he thinks that perhaps he can destabilise the coalition. Um, but at the same time, there's no doubt that that strengthens particularly the, the British hand, that they can say that they've had... A, made a significant contribution because there's always been this debate about to what extent is the Peninsula War a sideshow and and yes the inverted commas good news for the coalitions that keeps coming out of Spain does kind of encourage and I think help 
cement that sense that look the French can be beaten. Um, I was talking to Alex Mikabaritzi the other week about this, the fact that during the Russian campaign of 1812, the Russians are looking at what Wellington did in the campaign in 1810 and, and, and 11 with the lines of Torres Vedras. So ideas certainly come out of that, but the, the big contribution that the Britain's always able to say is, look, we paid for this war. Um, but having had such a key role within the final defeat, by no means an exclusive role, but you know, the Brits being the Brits love to push the nations to one side and not acknowledge the Dutch, not acknowledge the Prussians half so much. Um, I, I think it definitely strengthens the, the English voice or the British voice. Yeah, but um, again here, it's also thanks to the grace of Tsar Alexander, because if there was one country with most of the troops present, with most of the weight still on the continent as a leverage for Napoleon, it was the Russians, with Russian troops. And they were there. There was 1.2 million soldiers in France at that moment. Most of them were from the Russian army. So um, if I'm saying this correctly, yes, I think I am. So the Russian army was there. And it was only why, uh, because Tsar Alexander gave Wellington a kind of well, permission is too strong a word. It's not Wellington didn't need permission. You're right in that. But but Tsar Alexander was the higher one up in the hierarchy, and he kind of relinquished his position and he said, "Well, we are going to make the hero of Saragossa, the hero of Bajados, we're going to make him the chair of the Allied Council because Tsar Alexander had great respect and admiration for Wellington, and that's Wellington's." Uh, again, serendipity moment because he was not just a diplomat, he was also a great warrior and he was also the one, he was the Prince of Waterloo, he was uh, friends with Metternich, um, Tsar Alexander knew him and valued him highly, so because of that goodwill, he was put in that position and Britain was put in that position, you're completely right of course, it's the British pounds that, that, that paid for it, but it was also the power constellation at the time, and this, this gesture by Tsar Alexander that not Russia, not the Prussians, not anyone else, not Metternich, but Wellington would be within the British embassy, the chairman of that allied council, and, and, and that I think gave Britain um, so much influence at that moment. We could keep talking about this all night, but I, I guess we should allow other people to have their rants. Um, Dorman, I have a sneaking suspicion where you're about to go with this rant. Um, yeah, I mean, uh, uh, I mean, to be invited on a podcast called the Napoleonicists and, and to take this stance is probably a little bit controversial, but at the same time, people do need to give that period a rest. Like, I mean, there's so many more interesting things to talk about in world history. Like, yes, this little Corsican guy, you know, did very well for himself. Uh, but, you know, at the same time, you cannot consider that period without looking at the period that comes before. And more interestingly, I think you can consider the Napoleonic period, considering what comes after and the consequences of it. They're far more important for what we, for today. I mean, I'm not going to suggest that the Napoleonic period was, you know, a sideshow or anything like that for what comes afterwards. But its impact is obviously incredibly important. But at the same time, I would just like to see more done on it. Maybe I'm just ignorant to it, being an 18th century historian. I, I'm more aware of what goes on in the 18th century. But that's, and I also do feel that during the Napoleonic period, there is an overfocus on the battles. Now I know it's dominated by war. That's fine. But can we get a little bit more of the behind the scenes 
discussions and, and that kind of thing as well, because it's not all battles. And as a result, the kinds of people who are interested in this period are button counting uniform Nazis who are just obsessed with these inane accuracies of, oh, you you have the wrong Carassier regiment represented in your artwork. Would you go to hell? Like, I'm sorry, but in the grand scheme of things, as you said, British pounds are paying for it. It doesn't matter that the 33rd fought her in this painting when it's actually the 27th. Like, it, in the grand scheme, it's completely irrelevant. So I think the way this period is presented is a little bit archaic. And as a result, it attracts unfortunately a group of people who can be incredibly anal about the period so if we can take a step away from the traditional history narrative that would be pretty entertaining and i think you know the numbers your podcast does is a pretty good indication of that that's me well well said i even applauded you um <laughs> part way through that uh yes thank you dorman i have no arguments with you whatsoever um, which is really bad form for somebody who is trying to make their name selling Napoleonic stuff to the world. Um, but I mean, you're right. Of course you're right. Um, there's, there's a point to be made here about how no period can be taken within isolation uh, and no single thing can be taken within isolation. I'm sorry, another crime and punishment thing incoming. But I, so I look at military courts as I've bored people to death with. But I make a point in the first few pages of this thesis I've written that you cannot consider military law within a vacuum because it doesn't operate within a vacuum. It operates within the context of a much bigger, much more sophisticated and legally superior civilian legal system. And so, you, you know, just as you have to consider the wider context within a period and not military, the military context within its own little bubble, so when you're looking at time periods, you need to consider what feeds in and then also what feeds out, because that's the whole thing of it. And yes, people will turn around and say, oh, but if you do that, then you have to start at the year zero and end at the year 2021. Well, no, you don't, because all time demarcations are arbitrary anyway. So I hear you. Um, I, I'm not saying that I'm very good at doing what you advocate. Um, not least because I'm very, very conscious that even within the context of this podcast, which is meant to run from 1789 to 1815, um, we tend to focus at least post-1800 and, and even then more sort of 1807 onwards, um, he says with much egg on his face. <laughs> um, so yeah, I hear you. Beatrice, do you want to comment on that before I, I segue into my rant? No, I completely agree. I completely agree with Andrew Dorman. I don't know him, but um, I, I love what he said. And uh, <laughs> the only thing that I do um, uh, have a little bit of an issue with at home, not with Andrew, but, but with the Dutch Andrew, so to speak, that's people who say, well, the age of Napoleon, the age of revolution, uh, it's interesting as such, but the real transformations uh, already happened in the 18th century. And the centralized nation states, uh, the, 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 the draft, um, the Allied Council, that's not so new as you make it out to be. So perhaps I do stress the ruptures more than I do the continuities, but people that only stress the continuities also sort of lose out on the fact that uh, a period in history where five million people die and the whole percentages of, of the demographic disappears out of a sudden, that does something to history and to the public consciousness of the time. Mm. There's, um, 
there's a whole debate, isn't there, about to what extent does France suffer a, a catastrophic loss of um, young men, which therefore influences its ability to grow from a population perspective. And I've, I've ended up getting quite confused in that debate because I've seen both sides dismiss the other as nonsensical. Um, but it, it's always struck me as very logical that, okay, yes, Napoleon has this thing of bringing in other nations um, and you know, using their manpower to, to um, staff the, the Grand Armée, for example, that goes into Russia. But at the same time, if you look at 1814 and, and the, the much earlier, 1813, 1814, but also the, the campaigns um, from much earlier from the French Revolutionary period, there is this point that it's paid for with French blood and that therefore must have had some kind of impact on the ability of the population to grow. Um, so yeah, I, I completely hear you with that. But I also, I, I'm just gonna put this one out there and this isn't a counter to Dorman. I, I also do get quite frustrated by people who say that there's no point, to, and Dorman isn't saying this, but people sometimes turn around to me and say, there's no point in studying the Napoleonic era. And I had a colleague at my university uh, say this to me on one occasion. She, with the be uh, she, without even a hint of irony, she turned to me and she said, but why are you studying the Napoleonic era? Nobody's talking about Napoleon anymore, not even in France. And I kind of thought, you're, you're a, a highly regarded, very experienced and extremely intelligent academic. You hold a chair in history at this university and you're telling me that people aren't talking about this period. I would suggest that that individual hadn't spent some time with the existing historiography, mm -hmm. frankly, because people really are talking about this period because it's managing to, you know, create a little living for folks like me who witter on pointlessly and aimlessly about uh, the period. And um, so, yeah, I, I wouldn't kind of go to the extreme end of that, um, but I, I hear you, Andy. I really do hear you. I, I want to backpedal a little bit because there is one usefulness of this period and it, it takes up a space in pop history bookshops that would probably be occupied by World War One and Two otherwise. And that's quite useful. <laughs> so it does introduce people to the pre-20th, the concept of pre-20th century history. That is, that is true. But let's be honest, we can't compete um, with our, our colleagues in, in the world of World War One and World War Two. Um, you know, two columns of, of bookshelves dedicated to, you know, 20th century conflict and a shelf or maybe two if you're lucky for Napoleonic and yeah. then it just seems to jump to world history doesn't it before that point mm -hmm. it's, it's all very frustrating well no you get Tudors don't yeah. forget Tudors yes, 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 yes. Um, that being said though I haven't seen more uh, books discussing um, interesting figures more female than male these days uh, from the early modern period in bookshops, which is quite a, a new one came out about uh, Maria Theresa and her daughters, for example. So you're seeing an, a, an increase in popularity in that kind of history, which is cool. So it's not, so it seems that the early modern period, and I guess if I, don't, I know people aren't a fan of that term, but that's the niche it's carving out, which is kind of not, it's not the age of warfare, which there was a lot of battles, but it's not that anymore. It's an age of diplomacy. And, and that, I don't know if uh, yes, you 
that, that's true. And don't forget, I mean, um, uh, if you look what's happening in the bookshops in the United States, where the Age of Revolutions is also going strong, if you look up the website Age of Revolutions, uh, they make the combination with um, American Revolution, they make the combination with slavery, they make the combination with revolutions in the Americas, and then all of a sudden it gets even more exciting. Hmm. Um, so I do think there's still more work to be done also here in Europe to connect diplomatic, military history, also with colonial history, also what happens in India, Kaap de Goede Hoop, the Indies, um, the treaties that were concluded, the fight. I have a PhD who also defended this uh, PhD successfully and hopefully his book will come out next year. And he wrote a PhD on how the European powers got together in Vienna and afterwards to work to fight the Barbary Corsairs in the 1860s and concluded all kinds of alliances and treaties on the Mediterranean. So it's not just competition and, and rivalry and imperial expansionism from individual states. It's also working together and carving out spaces of influence on, um, on, on, on the waters. And I don't know, Zach, if, if you did a lot on that in your podcast, but the Napoleonic period is also a period uh, for sea power for warfare at sea and for expansion on the seas and we know not so much about that still so i think even if you would like to work on battles that there, there's more work to be done or the battles uh, uh the crimea or um the ottoman empire that that, that sort of breaks uh, apart in that period there's, there's still so many interesting battles that you could pursue and uh, write something also socio-economic or financial interesting about yeah, no arguments there. Um, we had a naval month, which went down oh, sorry. In, yeah. incredibly well. But the, the reason there was a naval month was it was voted for by the patrons. But also, it's because naval history had been woefully, woefully treated um, on the podcast up until that point. And one of the things I do need to make sure I do going forward is embed more naval history, but not just. British naval history, which a lot of what happened in Naval Month ended up being British naval history, um, such as the nature of podcasting. You have to find balances between the sort of the clickbait stuff and, and the stuff that, um, that is valuable. Um, but that's a that's a discussion for another day. But yes, I, I'm with you. Just, just, let me just mention the name of my PhD student. I forgot to mention it's Eric de Lange is his name. We've had conversations about Eric, haven't we? Um, who, who seems to be a, a brilliant individual. Um, I'm going to talk about my rant very briefly, and I, I'm going to keep it brief. Um, and it's not an academic phenomenon that I'm frustrated with. It's a popular phenomenon that seems to exist amongst a very select breed within a select breed. So we all know of the concept of the armchair general got no issue with the concept of the armchair general other than the fact that you know can you please recognize the fact that the realities of conflict are far more complex than hindsight would leave us to believe and hindsight is 2020 and it's very easy to sit back and, and make a commentary with all the the knowledge at your fingertips and that's my only issue with armchair generals per se but amongst armchair generals there is a subbreed um, who tend to treat military history as sport and Beatrice is smiling knowingly. Uh, <laughs> Dorman has got a grim look on his face at this point in time. Uh, so I suspect we're all on the same page with this one. And it just annoys the hell out of me on a, on a number of levels, partly because 
the types of individuals who will try and draw some kind of sporting analogy with military history are usually the in types of individuals who you would never see anywhere near a battlefield for precisely the reason that they would wee themselves at the first sound of the gunfire. Now, I have no issue with that concept of being utterly terrified of the concept of being in a battle, but therefore treat the topic with just a modicum of respect because war is not sport. People die. Yes, okay, people die in certain sports, but the whole purpose of war is for people to be killed and who is the best at killing and therefore taking an advantage out of destroying lives, not just the people who are shot in combat, not just the people who die of their wounds subsequently from horrific diseases, but the much wider ripple effects, the impact on families, the psychological impact. War is designed to do really horrendous things to people. That's, that's a very banal and very obvious thing to say. But the people who try to make out that, I don't know, Waterloo was Agincourt round two, for example, and that, you know, the, the French had a good offence, but the British had a good defence, and in the end they won 2-1, or some utter, utter crap like that. As Dorman said, just, just leave, just, just go, go away, and, and don't come back, because there's a need to treat history as a whole, and particularly history where people have given their lives to a cause, regardless of what that cause was, with just a modicum of respect and due deference to the human sacrifice. And yes, that's something that I feel very acutely with the charity work and the, the whole thing about, you know, war graves and honouring the war dead. But it, I think there is a real disconnect. And in a time where we're trying to be more careful in how we talk about things and more respectful in our language that we use, I do think it's important that we recognise the human sacrifice that's behind figures and talking about wins and losses is okay to a point provided you recognize that those wins and losses inverted commas are predicated on actual human lives lost and families who lose loved ones so that is my rant just have a little tiny bit of respect for what the you know the human element behind history please um <laughs> i'm not expecting you to respond to that although i'm, I'm getting smiles and nods so i suspect we're on the same page there I was just going to comment of all your Christmas parties are like this. <laughs> no, I, can, I mean, fully agree. And I think a lot of it comes down to the way um, that I, I don't like using the term pop history because I think that undermines the importance of getting history out there. But it's the way it's presented uh, more so than anything. And it, a lot of it is very statistical and it's or not even statistical in a way, but You'll get, okay, World War One documentary and they'll fire a Vickers machine gun at some ballistics gel. And then, say, oh, can you imagine the horror? But they don't really do a good job of showing the horror, um, giving any deference to the horror. It's just, we got to fire a Vickers machine gun at some ballistics gel, and that's the exciting thing. So, yeah, no, I completely agree. Yeah, I wrote a paper um, during my master's year about a TV show called Instruments of Death. The, yeah, <laughs> Dorman rolls his eyes. You can imagine all of what it was. I mean, it started with a guy driving his four by four across the Waterloo battlefield, which instantly just angered me. Um, and in fact, the comments that I got back on that paper was, it would be good if there was more analysis and less outrage in this paper. <laughs> <laughs> but it, it, it included things like, hey, let's just hack a part, you know, half a, a pig carcass so that we can demonstrate the impact of a 
1796 cavalry saber on on a body and you just sort of think look can we just remember that replace a pig carcass with a human being and the context is massively different um so yeah that's me and and um normally i'm i'm more easygoing in, in my party storm and you will you will be pleased to hear let's let's move it on though to the final topic for tonight which is what's needed for the future um shall i start with this one um i've i've had a habit of banging on up to people about we need a decent biography of the duke of york because of the kind of the, the wider impact that i think i think if somebody dug into his life properly and really started laying it out and did a kind of roy muir style treatment of york's life you would understand a hell of a lot more about the the the, the wider stuff that's going on and the wider impact that York has on how the British army gets restructured and reorganized and therefore where the army that ends up winning the Peninsula War and ends up contributing to the success of the Waterloo campaign comes from. But that's my theory there. I'm not going to go to town on that because I've done that before. Um, but we need a kind of a Roaring Muir's Wellington, but for the Duke of York or, or just something that's, that's just nicely done and properly footnoted and, and really deep dive um so that would be nice um but in terms of wider things that's needed for the future i do think there is a need for and i'm gonna go back to what we said earlier about you know translations so um i forget who it was who said that it was a, a it might have been alex michael again um the other week who was talking about the fact that there's been a great biography recently of august moment uh one of napoleon's marshals wouldn't it but it's in french wouldn't it be lovely for somebody to just sit down and translate that so that it could be read more widely um because if we and this kind of perhaps sort of vaguely ties in with what pictures is saying about you know scholars coming together and and sharing research that bit more and it would be lovely for you know idiots like me who do not speak multiple languages because i just can't get my head around them despite best efforts and intentions to be able to engage with that work properly um, and I actually think it would be nice if we had a lot more work on the marshals so we could solve some of these Twitter debates, inverted commas, that keep cropping up about, you know, the relative ranking of each marshal and Davu was better than Ney and, and Ney sat above Miss. I mean, this isn't what people say, but, you know, people start having these arguments about who was better. And it'd be nice. Yes, we had David Chandler's study and, and I'm not knocking Chandler for a moment, but a lot has happened in terms of access to material since David Chandler wrote his book. And actually, I'm not saying that there's a huge need for inverted commas, great men of history style works, but it would be nice if we had something that just kind of takes that whole topic and hits reset and refreshes the discussion so that we can then solve inverted commas that for now and move on to some other discussions that can come out of that fresh perspective on those people. And for them it's just a little bit more human and a little bit more flawed rather than hey let's put these people on a pedestal but let's not put person x on the same pedestal as person y um which turned into another rant sorry folks but that's uh, that's me i'm gonna zip it for a little while um beatrice what would you what do you think we need for the future 
We do need so much more. We need some original footage, Zach, from the Napoleonic Wars. We need to look, we need to watch some newsreels. How did, how, how did it sound? How did it smell? Uh, how was life really during the battlefields? Um, I, I try to kind of approach uh, the feeling of traveling through a battle situation by using the memoirs of Louise Adams. And she was in a carriage and she drove straight from Moscow, from St. Petersburg to um, Paris in the winter of 1814-1815 during the mobilization. So it was, was what she experienced, what she heard and saw on the street. She saw the corpses still lying in Leipzig. She saw the Cossacks uh, running by. So we need to have more real life experience from ordinary soldiers, from women, from diplomats. And I really liked what Andrew Dorman was uh, telling us before about wanting to look behind the scenes more. So what we just need is more empirical research, more archival research, what you're doing with the, the war records sack, what, what I try to do with the Allied Council. We need to more, have more records, for example, on the financial networks. How did people organize all the payments? Who traveled around Europe? with all that cash money, with all the, the banknotes, the, the paperwork, the obligations. Um, how did they pay for this? And how did they make that happen? Uh, the Salonieres they already told, told you about. I mean, I know that Glenda Sluga did great work and she already covered some pioneering ground, but we could have more on that. We could have more on Caroline von Humboldt, as I said, or Dorothea von Lieven, Hortense de Beauharnais, whom I just talked about to you in the previous podcast. She doesn't have a proper biography. And these were the women that were tying all these princes and generals together. So we need more on them. So I, I do think, sorry, Andrew, I do think it's not time to conclude the age uh, of revolution. <laughs> but there's, there's still too much work to be done. And, and then for me personally, um, I would like to continue my work on the Allied Council and, and look into other conferences uh, notes and other minutes and how people at the time, the Wellingtons, but also the other diplomats, how they connected in their mind uh, revolutions and battles that happened in India, Indonesia, the Indies, uh, the, the continent. Did they already had a kind of a global vision, a global consciousness that was that was happening on the one end of the world and Americas also had a bearing on Europe. They did, but how exactly was their global um, worldview at that time? What, what was their vision on um, at, at the time itself about empire and expansion and cooperation? There's, there's still much work to be done because many books still rely on rehearsed materials, printed sources, and they do, they do not go back to the sources. It's, again, we could rabbit hole all night on that, couldn't we? It kind of, what you were saying there about individuals like Hortense de Beauharnais kind of comes back to what I was saying about, you know, it would be nice perhaps if we had a great women of history style movement, um, much the way I'm a, a passionate devotee of history from below. And so it would be nice to have a kind of a women's history from below. Perhaps, I mean, maybe I'm wrong in this, but is there perhaps a need, and this is just a, a theoretical question, I don't have any strong views on this, is there perhaps a need of people to kind of do a, rather than a great men of history, do a great women of history, for that to then filter down, for people to then have that counter movement of women's history from below, or can we achieve both simultaneously? I don't know. I'd like to think the latter is possible. Um, but that's a, a great philosophical question for far more accomplished and, and high-powered and intelligent people than me. Um, I was also struck by what you said there about, you know, the sights and the smells and the sounds. And I, I know you were kind of being tongue-in-cheek about the, the newsreel footage, but 
I've been talking recently to a few people who are involved in like digital history projects and reconstruction experience projects for another podcast, History Hack. Um, and it's been really interesting to hear about how they go about trying to recreate those smells and the sights and the sounds. And it makes me think about how in documentaries, uh, sorry, not in documentaries, in, in films that sort of try to trace ish historical events, you get so many things that we as specialists look at and suck our teeth and go, oh no, the shells didn't explode like that. That's much more of a World War I type concept or, or whatever it might be. But it might be nice if, if you're going to portray something like Waterloo, wouldn't it be nice to do it sort of as close to reality as you possibly could by just creating a big virtual reality digital history of a few locations in the battlefield, what could you have physically seen? What would have gone on around you? What would have been the sights, the smells and so on? And do a proper representation of war, which again would kind of feed into this kind of sense of what I was talking about earlier with those sort of armchair, let's treat military history as sport individuals, where you go, okay, you wanna be facetious about this. Now let's parachute you into the reality and see what you're actually talking about when you're dealing with these people. And yes, obviously there's all kinds of questions of censorship and the horrors of war and, and smells and, and you know that, that's all horrific. And, and you've got to be very careful about what you would portray there, but actually it'd be really nice to see digital history come to the Napoleonic era. But that needs somebody with a lot of money and a big research grant behind them and you know I'm, I'm just a guy with an idea um and probably not that original an idea if i'm being really honest uh dorman let me let me bring in you where would you like to see things go well obviously my um phd thesis is groundbreaking and that's clearly the best thing to happen to history ever um but aside from my own magnificence um i think what would be really useful, speaking again from my little 18th century hall, but we can bring that into the 19th century as well, was if you were to have a Netflix, HBO, whatever, Game of Thrones level production value series set in a city in the 1800s or 1700s, but done properly. Not, again, a history from below. Not your Bridgerton, your like, your, your town, you know, ladies and men and courting and everything. No, show the actual population. What was their lives like? And don't have it always be the, you know, the scary scene where the lady gets lost down murderer's alley or wherever, you know, <laughs> have a, a genuine history of those times and show what it was like, but with a compelling narrative. You, you can look at the archival sources, you can create one. I'm not a writer, but I'm sure it's possible. Something like that could be fantastic. Um, outside of that, I would like to see, we mentioned it earlier on, the continuing issues of nationalisation in history. Um, Irish history is, seems to be permanently stuck in this debate. I would like to see. continuing to denationalise Irish history would be great. Um, the debates that our grandfathers had and grandparents rather did not necessarily need to dominate our own opinions on the subject and it is possible to have nuance it would just be nice to see more of it and um i think as, as 
uh, Beatrice also mentioned, if we can stop relying on certain printed histories, that would be great too, just because it's, you know, an institutional legend text doesn't necessarily mean it's any good. And Zach, I think you know who I'm referring to here. So I don't necessarily need to drag a certain name through the mud, but there are some histories of the British Army that perhaps are less accurate than we might think. And there's better things out there these days. So can we stop relying on them, please? Thanks. We've only had a few hours of conversation about certain individuals who, as you say, we won't drag through the mud. Um, and incidentally, I have uh, a few copies of uh, said text just because, you know, sometimes you've you got to look at them just to go, okay, what's useful here? What's problematic? And where do I kind of go moving forwards? Um, hell, they're great fun to read, but from a research perspective, if people are taking that, as you say, as, as pure fact, that has to go unchallenged, yes, accept it as a historical source, fine, but be willing to challenge it and not take it as gospel. Um, and I think that's actually an approach that should be taken to every single piece of printed work ever. He says, having spent three hours trying to chase one reference to a, an order um, that was supposedly uh, issued about 18 months before I found it was actually issued and it annoyed the hell out of me. And I didn't need that in the final week of my PhD when I was trying to chase down one footnote. Um, sorry, I've started ranting again. It's almost like it's <laughs> compulsion with me. Um, Josh is back in the room. Josh, great to have you return to us. Let's, let's wrap up with you then. What's needed for the future of Napoleonic-ish history? Um, the, there are many great conceptions about the Napoleonic Wars. Um, and uh, I have a feeling that you've been talking about this while I've been gone. My apologies for my absence. Um, and many of them are driven by nationalist political agendas um, that were very current when most of the historiography was written. Um, in modern times, the Napoleonic Wars are dominated by the, the conflict aspect of them. And so it seems strange to suggest that the way the, the field, as it were, would go forward would be to leave the battlefield. But I think that is actually what needs to happen more. Um, because so much of the, the misconceptions and the popular conceptions, which are not always untrue, but often um, sort of a swim in a sea of uh, misunderstanding, uh, are driven from popular media nowadays. And that essentially means focusing on the armies and the battles. You, it again feeds into nationalist myth. And so if you therefore leave the battles and you look more at the biographies and the politics and the diplomacy and how these things were the real drivers behind the military campaigns rather than the battles first and the tactics and everything. They're all very important, of course. It's, you know, one does not exist without the other. But if, if the focus, and I think it is swinging that way, thanks to, to work uh, certainly by Beatrice recently and also uh, Alexander Mikaberidze, uh, if, if it continues to swing in this different direction or 
maybe it's not a different direction, just just a direction that hasn't been traveled very often in, in recent years, then I think that would be a good thing. Which leaves me, because I completely agree with you, uh, with a, a question that has always bugged me. Um, and I, I've never actually put this into words because I wonder if it could actually be career ending um, for me to express an opinion on. So I'm not requiring or obligating any of you to, to respond to this. But is military history just a few years behind developments in kind of the wider history of society? And I'm thinking here about, you know, so history of, the, the, we talked earlier about the history from below, you know, the idea that you study the little guy or girl um, in, in history. Um, that was starting to come into the mainstream in wider history in the 60s then the kind of military history from below seems it seems to take a little while to filter in at least certainly within the napoleonic context that was my reading of it you know it, it was more like the 70s that you started to see those kinds of things appearing and then really came to a fore in you know the 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 90s and the 2000s so is military history just kind of a, a step behind is there perhaps a resistance there is there just a, a sense of a lag? Do, do military historians kind of sit back and wait to see what falls out of that wider shift in thinking about history more broadly? Um, these are deep philosophical questions. I'm sorry, th these are not questions for a, a party in the slightest. Um, and what sort of party? <laughs> yes, yes. Um, a party that induces headaches. Hang on, don't all parties induce headaches. It's just that this one hasn't involved the consumption of alcohol. <laughs> Uh, which is normally the, the way of parties. Um, I'm not expecting you guys to answer that, but hey, if you want to come in on, on those points and, and slap me down, please feel free. I mean, John Keegan's face of battle did touch on experience quite a lot. And the, the, the sights and the sounds and the smells, he at least attempted to tackle it. Now, he did draw some curious comparisons, but there was an effort made. Um, mm. But I think that once he brought that out and his other history of warfare, etc., a lot of people just went, okay, done. <laughs> and then um, we, can, we can move on. I don't know how many... Uh, but I'm not so sure. I think um, it's there, but it's not so uh, well organized, perhaps, as other types of history are. You have, for example, Alan Forrest and Nathalie Petitot, who brought out excellent uh, edited volumes on the role of the ordinary soldier, on munition, on, on um, uniforms, fooding, housing, uh, but from a very, very strong academic point of view. There's also the work done by Norman Neymark. I don't know if you know him. And if you take military history to the Cold War period, then of course, it's far more a Cold War situation where the socio-political, cultural context propaganda is involved as well. So the ideological aspect of warfare. Um, uh, the Russians in Germany, for example, is an excellent example of this, but it's indeed, you're right, it's early 19th. Uh, just as a, as, as a small consolation, I don't think the diplomatic historians are that trendy either. They also tend to follow the rest. So it's not that international diplomatic history was, was an avant-garde troop in, in dealing, for example, with emotions or culture or women, for that matter. They only, only follow now. That's a reassuring mm. note to end on. 
Mm. Um, military historians everywhere take heart if you're <laughs> concerned about whether or not you know, military history is, is embracing the, the new phenomena that might help us to achieve wider understandings. Thank you all. For, for joining me. I don't really know if this ended up being a party or just a chance to have a cathartic rant. Um, but one way or another, I've had a great time. Um, we've discussed so many really interesting ideas. Um, I don't even know what I'm going to call this. Perhaps the state <laughs> of Napoleonic history. Um, that, so, that, mm -hmm. that, that might do it. Um, but thank you all for joining me this evening. Andy, Beatrice, Josh, we're actually recording before Christmas. Have a very Merry Christmas, mm -hmm. um, but have a very happy and healthy New Year. And I'll look forward to seeing you again very soon. Same to you, Zach. Same to, same to you. Hello again, folks. You know what's coming. Do me a favour. It's the Christmas season. Goodwill to all mankind and all that. Give this post a like. Go to Apple Podcasts and leave a review if you've been enjoying the content over the last year. If you think somebody else might be interested, then let them know about it. All those things, the sharing, the likes, the retweets, um, the reviews, it's all contributed to what is starting to become a parabolic increase in the popularity of the Napoleon Assist. Um, a year ago, I was sat here kind of feeling massively chuffed about something like 24,000 downloads in nine months. The show is now on something like 92,000. I've lost count of the number of episodes. The listenership is exceeding 1,000 per episode. The, this, the figures are just crazy. And I want to take a moment to thank every single one of you who has tuned in all of this time. It's been going on, what, 21 months, I think, now? And the fact that I've got people still coming back for more still engaging, still loving this content, means an incredible amount. It's hugely humbling to be doing this out of a tiny little room and be beam beaming it across the world to something like 60 countries. Actually, it might be more than that. Anyway, to an, a lot of countries around the world. Wherever you are in the world, thank you for tuning in, and please keep tuning in in the new year. You know how this show works. It is able to keep going thanks to the generosity of my Patreon supporters. If you are interested in joining them, the tiers start from £1 a month. There are all kinds of perks from shout-outs to voting rights and the ability to request content and one-to-one -one chats with me. You get access to a Discord server. So there's all kinds of stuff that you can kind of benefit from if you're interested in taking part. A shout-out as ever to my Emperor-level patrons, Mark Stoos and J.C. Kaiser, my Commander patrons, Ger Brown, Jane Davis, Marcus Cribb, Matt Bone, Bob Burnham and Stephen Gillam, and my mentioned in Dispatches patrons, Alexandra Leon, Alistair Campbell-Greve, Andy Meakin, Beatrice de Graff, Brendan Teeling, Colin Fieldhouse, Ed Koss, an anonymous Canadian, Gareth Copeland, Jeff Maple, Hugh Brennan, James Bevan, Jim Deary, Jim Getz, John Haynes, Josh Keeney, Lucy Tatner, Lynn Dawson, Mark Dewhurst, Rob Griffith, Roy Muir, Ross Flowers, Ryan Diamond, and Stephen Coulson. I'm Zach White. This has been The Napoleon Assist. Take care of yourselves, my friends. Stay well, stay safe, have a very, very Merry Christmas, and as always, thank you for listening. Thank you.
deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.